I'm your producer, Todd Bartu, and this is the Offshore Explorer. Offshore Explorer looks at the world from the sailor's point of view, port by port. Together, we share stories that detail the important intersections between sailing culture and life, past, present, and future. Coming up on today's episode, when things go wrong, there are things we hope to never use, but keep them just in case. What happens when you have to use them? But first, let me introduce our host, a lifelong sailor who has traveled the world from mega yachts to tugboats to iceboats, and a published author who has written for both stage and screen, Captain Scott Dodson. Hello, Todd. How are you this uh, fine January afternoon? I'm doing great. What's uh, today's episode about? Today's episode is titled Just In Case. Um, I make the argument for the concept and notion of preparing for things that uh, might happen um, just in case uh, kinds of things as uh, being um, very much a part of the sailor's mind more than, say, other other um, endeavors such as, uh, uh, you know, dry, being on land or and even flying. I mean, with boats, we seem to have a lot of just in case. And there's a real uh, depth of uh, historical um, just-in-caseness, uh, as you might say, that, that goes back from, um, really starts back at the, the introduction of uh, Fulton's uh, steamboat. And that's where, and that idea consistently um, remains today as a kind of a ghost idea that we all prepare of just in case something is going to be crazy and happening. Okay, great. Take it away, Scott. Todd here. Do you like what you're hearing? Do you wish there was a way you could thank us for all of our hard work? Well, now you can. You can buy us a coffee. That's right. Just go to ko-fi.com slash offshore explorer and you can buy us a coffee. I'll leave the link in the show notes so you can go to it directly. Scott and I, thank you for listening. Now, back to the show. In 1967, I was 15, 15 and a half. I think I was 15 and a half for the entire year until I actually turned 16, which was in November of that year. But I, I had such a desire to be 16 because I knew that um, I could drive the car by myself. But I made a deal with something that I really had a passion for, which was, at the time, sailing. And my grandfather, who was also a sailor and loved to sail around his little dory, and, uh, you know, he would sail it around um, in Jersey, you know, out in the bay. And he would, it would be a place where he could just sail and think, whatever the case may be. The dory was very good. And Egg Harbor Bay has got a lot of mud flats and channels, like sort of any sort of saltwater bay. But it was fun sailing. You could sail around. It was good, clean wind, either coming off the ocean or coming off the shore. So it, it was a good place to to learn how to sail and to sail. Not not very many waves um, because it was enclosed, but it was still, you know, it was just a super nice place to sail. 
So I went, I, I made this, this deal with my grandfather about a boat that we had seen. Um, we watched this man put the boat in. I really can't picture it any more than seeing it being dropped into water um, by a little crane. And um, the boat was a 21-foot uh, sloop. It was a Hershore-designed uh, boat that this man had built in his garage and it was beautiful it was just gorgeous it was you know it was varnished it was bright it was it was perfect it was just gorgeous the guy was a true craftsman i mean he did everything he built the masts they were wood and it was deck stepped um you could, they were round I mean, just the loving detail that went into this boat was was really quite amazing. And um, we watched him the first day he put it in water and, you know, let us sit there. And they, they had actually uh, left it overnight because they wanted the water to get into the wood and swell the wood up a little bit. So um, it wouldn't be a problem. They had a pump. They had a little electric pump in there. Um, just in case water came through the boat. Um, there wasn't a prop. There wasn't an engine. It was just a sailboat. So after seeing this, we both started to talk about, boy, that would be really great to have. And my grandfather just came out of the blue and said, well, we could buy a boat like that, um, and you could have it, but you'll have to pay me back. And this is in lieu of buying you a car. Big decision on my part. Car, girls, guys having fun driving around, or a boat. I eventually made the decision to go with the boat. And I didn't know if we were going to get this boat. I was just speculating. We were just speculating on the boat. So later in the summer, uh, my grandfather came back. He had been out sailing by himself as he often did and he came back and he said uh, the guy wants to sell the boat let's go let's go take a look at it so we went and took a look at the boat the boat didn't have a name by the way and you know the sails were all new and and the boat was just beautiful and the guy my grandfather started to talk to him and the guy was like very upset and i couldn't figure out why because you know back in those days when you were a kid or a young man, you just didn't stand um, next to adults when they were having adult conversations. You you had to kind of, they didn't want to see you. They're having an adult conversation. It doesn't include you. Get the hell out of here. So I was just sort of looking at the boat, and I remember I was, you know, fascinated with the r little running lights, and like, wow, they're so shiny, and they're red, and they're green, you know. It was just, I was just mesmerized by this boat. And as it turns out, this guy, he actually was building the lifeguard boats. And I don't know if any of you are familiar with this, but in Jersey, um, they used to have these big rowing lifeguard boats go out to rescue people in. And it's a big deal. You know, the lifeguards row out and they have teams and they have races and they're wood boats. And this guy built, that's what this guy did. He built these boats. Now, 
there was a lot of them. You see them sometimes overturned on the beach just so the water doesn't get in them and then the lifeguards come and, and they slide them down into the ocean and, um, you know, they go rowing and they go out to, uh, to rescue somebody caught in the surf. And they're great boats. They're, they're strong and, and, and they're built of wood. And you got to have some thrust on those oars to make a move. So anyway, this is what this guy did. He built these boats. And as it turns out, he had had this fantasy dream that he was going to enjoy sailing, that that was going to be his thing. He was, that was sailing was going to be, you know, better than rowing. He went in this boat, he built this boat with tons of love, went out sailing, came back, thought it was the worst experience in his entire life. He got seasick. Um, he, he, he didn't like waiting on the wind. He couldn't figure out how to handle the wind and he just wasn't going to have anybody tell him how to sail and, and be a better sailor. He just refused. And my grandfather offered to him, you know, in a casual way. Yeah, I can help you a little bit. And, you know, there was just this big like hullabaloo and this guy was so upset. And my grandfather says, uh, oh, let me buy the boat from you. And the guy was just like, he, he, I could see in his eyes, I kind of sidled over a little bit closer so I could hear the conversation. And, you know, I'm, I'm 15 and a half pimply little kid with frizzy black hair sticking out all over the place. And, and the guy just says, 850. And my grandfather, he just looked at him and he says, deal. So he says, I got my checkbook in the car. Will you take a check? You know, will you take a check? And of course, back then, people always took checks. Checks were sacred. You know, you gave somebody a check. That was that was the real deal. Just like money. So my grandfather went back and he wrote a check for $850. And and the guy gave him he had the papers for the boat because it had to be registered. Um, car, like car registration. It was registered in uh the state of New Jersey. And um, so we had the little stickers and all the rest of that stuff on the boat. And, and, and that was, that was the deal. Then that afternoon, um, I was the proud owner of a boat. Well, my grandfather was the proud owner. I just had to pay him back. And I had a job during the school year. I had jobs to, to pay him back. Now, what you have to understand is 850 bucks back then, 1967, was a lot of money. I mean, I think the minimum wage was $1.15, right? And, and you know, for, you work 40 hours for, you know, 50 bucks a week. And people could live on that. That was the other thing people don't realize. You could live on that. And my grandfather wasn't a rich man. But he had worked in the newspaper. He was a newspaper man, and um, he was a union man. And you know, he had they had saved money. My grandmother, and my grandfather, they had bought a house down in Ocean City, New Jersey, and and they had a lot of things going for them. Anyway, so it was up to me to pay him back. But I was just so thrilled to have this boat. And when all my friends would come to me and say, "Hey, Scott, you know, why don't you get a car?" Why do you have to keep bumming rides off us? I said, no, I got a boat, man. And that was like, okay. They would go like, oh, you have a boat. 
Can we go on the boat? Yeah, man, you can go on the boat. Okay, you can ride in my car then. And that was that was the way things work. I mean, I wasn't really all that interested in girls at that point, but you know, anytime we did go out, it was always a double or triple date in the same car and my friends would drive and 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 I always got the ride on the 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 promise of taking everybody out on my sailboat, which I might add, I very rarely ever did. Because in summer, everybody went their different ways, vacationed in different towns. And so I very rarely saw anybody in the summer that I could take sailing. But I was very willing to take them sailing. So I just went out and I started to sail this little boat. I named it Steppenwolf. Um, after the book, you know, after the band, it was sort of like my thing, Herman Hess. Um, I was a big reader back then and still am, and that was a that was the deal. So Steppenwolf was the name of the boat. So I went out a few times. Um, late in the season, um, like school had already started, and um, we would come back on like for like uh, it was after Labor Day. We would come back. I think it was like in October when you still had those sort of um, warm sunny days, cold nights, brisk wind kind of concept going on. And it was a really kind of great thing. And so I used to go out. <clears throat> the little marina where we kept the boat was um, a good distance, but it was bicycle riding distance. So I used to ride my bike from the house over to the marina, and then I'd go out on the boat. And... I would go out and I'd go sailing around. I'd run across the mud flats, and you know we had a routine. I, I eventually I had bought uh, some crab traps, and my grandmother, who um, would not eat chicken or any fowl, long story, but in any case, she would uh, give me chicken fat and and whatever chicken was around because she would cook it for everybody, and I'd put them in the traps, and then we would catch, um, go out sailing, put the traps out on the mud flats go out sailing and, you know, you come back and they'd be filled with uh, soft shell uh, crabs. It was a great time, you know, abundance of the ocean, abundance of the bay. It was fantastic. Well, one time it was late in the afternoon and we were coming back. Um, I say we, I met the boat and I, and we were coming back um, to pick up the little mooring that I had. And the wind died and the tide was going out and as the wind died and the tide was going out I ended up getting stuck on a mud flat well it it took forever to get the boat off the mud flat I was out of the boat I was pushing the boat off the mud I was standing in the mud up to my knees you know I could feel the crabs biting me and you know say hey there's the guy who caught my cousin Eddie no I haven't seen him since let's get him um there was all that kind of jazz going on. I had no way of getting the boat from from pretty far out in the bay back to the marina. So I was essentially just stranded until the wind picked up and I could sail sail back. Well, it got to be late. The sun went down and it gets in October. The sun goes down kind of early in Jersey. And... 
I, I wasn't moving. I was just sitting there. I got off the mud flats. And I was just sitting there and I started to move with the tide. The tide at the time was going out. So I could actually literally kind of use the rudder to steer the boat around through the tide. And it was, it was working towards taking me out Townsend's Inlet, which uh, after that I had done it many, many, many times, which I would take the mast off and lower the mast because it was a deck step mast. And then I would slide underneath the highway because it was very low. And um, literally you could stand in your boat and touch the, the highway underneath it. And, and then I would be out into the ocean. And this was, this was like, when it became one of my great things, how to get into the ocean. The only other way you could really get into the ocean was to uh, go up to um, Margate and you could get out up at Margate or even further keep going up to Atlantic City and you could come out of Atlantic City. But just in case that happened... I had a little tiny anchor and I put it out because I wasn't prepared to go out into the ocean with no wind. There was just no wind. It was really remarkable. Just no wind at all. So as this is going on, my grandfather had become a little bit alarmed the fact that I wasn't back for dinner. So he came down to the marina and he was looking around and he saw that there was no wind. And he knew the second he got there that there was no wind. Because usually you get this nice sort of afternoon breeze, um, evening breeze, then it dies and then it picks up again and kind of gets back to normal. But there was none of that happening. And so he's, you know, looking out and he he saw me. And I was maybe a mile and a half at that, um, just basically sitting at anchor um, as the tide was going out. So my strategy was to wait till the tide changed. And then when the, the rush started to come in, that I would have enough of the rush to push me and maybe the wind would pick up and I can get close to the dock and, you know, can do stuff like that. So my grandfather talked to one of the guys who had a little power boat and it came out and they came out and got me and towed me back which was a great relief because I was really hungry and I had all these crabs on the boat, um, in traps. And, um, I mean, I can't remember if I had anything on the boat to eat. Usually I, you know, I bought a jar of Jiffy peanut butter and, you know, a loaf of bread. And that was usually the food that I would eat when I was on the boat. And, um, you know, a couple of, couple of cans of Coke or something like that. But anyway, bottles of Coke, because we didn't have cans back at that point. So I got back to the dock, um, tied the boat off, and everybody, I said, you know, I was, I was good, I was waiting. And they said, no, nah, it wasn't a good idea for you to sit out there like that. And they were being very nice and all the rest of this kind of stuff. And um, so we went, uh, I went home, we ate dinner, and everybody was relieved. And there was a lot of discussion about why you know giving scott a boat may not be the best idea he could get himself killed and you know not that i was in any kind of jeopardy whatsoever i mean i could have very easily i had an anchor i was anchored there's nothing going on so the next day my grandfather and i um went back down to the boat together he drove his he drove the car 
And um, we started talking, this, that, another thing. And he says, you know what you need? He says, you need a seahorse. And I'm thinking, seahorse, how does this, what's a seahorse going to do for me? But what he was referring to was a Johnson five and a half, half horsepower motor, outboard motor for, for, the, for the boat. And Johnson's five and a half horsepower motor was called a seahorse. They had a whole line called the seahorses, right? Five and a half horsepower seahorses, Johnson. And back then they were kind of expensive, but we got a used one um, from, from a guy with another boat. He says, yeah, it runs. And, you know, so we bought this used. And this was my first um, dealing with outboard motors, by the way, which have plagued me um, as a boat and yacht captain for all my career, not necessarily play me but i do understand them very well and um so any case i i ended up with this five and a half horsepower um johnson seahorse outboard motor and pop you know it was very light you could they're not heavy pop just handed it to me and he says this is just in case that's what you're going to use it for this is just in case and that's really where I'm going with this. It's called Just In Case. Just In Case has everything to do with sort of a precautionary measure. In other words, um, there's an alternate case if the original doesn't work. So my case here is, is that this Johnson was my auxiliary motor, Just In Case, uh, the wind died, and I would use that. After that, if the motor died and there was no wind, there was no secondary plan. But what me, made me think of this uh, concept of just-in-case, of course, is, you know, safety. Um, safety is like the biggest thing in the just-in-case scenario. Um, you know, life rafts and, and life vests and flares and radios and waterproof flashlights and, and, and every kind of safety equipment you could possibly imagine all has to do with the just-in-case scenario. However, in a real world weird way, there seems to be more of an abundance of caution in the just-in-case notion when people are navigating and sailing in oceans and lakes and rivers then would be in other things like what's your just-in-case scenario for your car you get a flat tire you got a spare tire boom thanks just in case boom you're off or you get triple a whatever right you run out of gas gas station somebody comes out to, to get you Whatever the case, your car, your engine blows up, all right? Tow trucks, et cetera. That's where your just-in-case ends, okay? So there is some planning involved in that, like, you know, making sure you don't run out of gas before you get to a gas station. Making sure you have money in your pocket to pay for the gas in case you need it. 
All of this is a part of that just-in-case scenario or planning. And in, in a lot of um, social media that I see and a lot of people that write me, there's a lot of questions and they all seem to have this word planning. Sometimes the word is, is used sort of apologetically. Um, you know, I'm an obsessive planner, so this is natural. Or it's uh, demonstratively um, the importance of planning for your ship sinking, um, what to do when trapped on a lee shore, grounded, advanced planning to get you off the bottom, planning for pirates, the list of titles um, that have planning in them for sailors is just is just insane. There's tons of titles, tons of stories, just in case. You know, you look at pilots, for example, right? And flying planes, you know, what's their just in case? Their just in case is getting the plane on the ground as fast as possible if there's if there's some sort of disaster. Otherwise, there's very little just in case kind of safety involved with it. They build a system around planes so the planes can do it. But in boats, people don't generally see the system because there is a system. Um, but they generally, as a pleasure boater, you don't see the system. You're not, you, you're not actively a part of what the system is. So I would argue that just-in-case notions and behaviors are very different than, say, Plan B ideas. Um, plan B sort of represents um, a parallel plan. You know, for example, like if you have a life raft or you've decided to use your dinghy as your life raft, um, you know, that's sort of a plan B, right? If we sink, plan B is we have a life raft. Um, if we sink, plan B is we have a dinghy. Now, I've always sort of enjoyed the idea of a dinghy being a life raft. And there's a few stories, and I think I've actually told them about my friends whose boat sank coming out of Madagascar in the Indian Ocean. And they put uh, 55 gallon drums of diesel fuel and probably about 50 or 60 gallons of uh, gasoline. And um, they put that into their life raft and then towed their life raft with their dinghy and their um, uh, Yamaha 15 horsepower outboard motor. And they went 250 miles in open sea, mixing gasoline with diesel to make it last. And they eventually um, made it to uh, Durban, South Africa. A pretty crazy story and totally believable because I know the guys who, who did it and they were, this is the kind of stuff that they were prone to doing. Um, they were, as we would say, real plan B kind of guys. But just in case, to me, um, is more a response to sort of a perpendicular interruption of all plans. It's a kind of slash or a crash, you know, like the mast breaking and falling into the water or having a fire consume your yacht that is, that's been new for one month. I had this happen to a friend of mine um, coming out of uh, Corfu. Um, brand new boat, brand new, you know, basically mega yacht. I think it was about 125, 130 feet. Um, Italian built, I believe. Um, 
the owner's first vacation on it uh, came out of Corfu. Uh, they were it was night. They were out. The first mate was talking to the captain, and the first mate looked at the. Uh, they were in the pilot house. Um, everybody was the crew was resting. Uh, they were making the transit across the Ionian to uh, Italy. And he looked at the cameras because there's on big yachts, there's cameras everywhere, and especially cameras in the engine room that are constantly scanning the engine room. And he looked down, and there was nothing but smoke in the engine room. And he sounded the alarm, um, got everybody up, got called Mayday. Um, the engine stopped running, um, and the boat literally burst into flames. They got everybody off into life rafts, made a whole shooting match. They were rescued by a uh, U.S. Navy uh, ship, and um, the boat burnt to the waterline. Brand new boat. Now, that's what I call just in case. Because there was nothing that Plan B was going to do. I mean, they had a failure of immense proportions in the fire suppression kit. Didn't work. Brand new boat. Who thinks that it wouldn't work? So this next experience is that they went through and getting on that is just, that's just in case something happens. You know, you have the last alternative the last thing you could do and in this case the last thing they thought they were going to do was use their brand new life rafts and their brand new uh, radios to get the hell off a burning boat so it seems to me like that it's just in case is not like the first plan you know like Sure, you're going to have fire suppression. Sure, you're going to have life rafts. But you never think that you're going to have to, one will fail and you have to use the others to sit in the middle of the Ionian Ocean until you get a, a U.S. Navy ship who heard your mayday come by and get you. So to me, just in case, is kind of the outer limits of a tree diagram of cause and effect. And a lot of sailors have this in their mind to say that just in case this happens, just in case, and they never get off the dock because they're into this just in case. They're, they're getting that tree diagram out. If A happens, then B happens. If B happens, we'll have to go to C. And on and on and on and on until, you know, the tree diagram becomes this un universe of, of what ifs and just in cases, all right? And the just in case means you have to act on that. Just in case means you have to go and, okay, like, okay, should I get a big life raft, a little life raft? When am I gonna need it? Do I really need something like this? You know, should I go get a, you know, um, PFD and, and, and what kind of PFD is it's just, you know, am I just going to be out in the lake or on the river? It's like no big deal. Or, you know, do I have to figure that, you know, I'm in the middle of the ocean and I could be there for days and days and days. You know, this is what you go through, but judgment and experience tells us that the issue of just in case is uh, just adding security. It's adding 
assurance. But throughout the history of sailing, this just-in-case attitude or thought was introduced first um, in a very dominant way by Fulton's steamship. Now, I bring this up in sort of a historical context because sailors and sailing big ships and the great ships, the age of sail, which came to the end because of steamships, okay, um, required lots of people. They required, you know, great expense, great sales, great number of 300 people to sail these big ships, okay? And the military, the Navy had to fight on both sides and the platforms and all the rest of this kind of stuff. But they had reached a maturity of their technology and they knew what they needed. So they didn't have any kind of just-in-case scenarios with the technology of the boat, you see? They could shift masts. If a mast broke, you had carpenters there just, just in case to, to repair the mast. I mean, there was a lot of, a lot of um, built-in experience in keeping a great ship running and keeping it, you know, fixed and maintained. And when they introduced, Fulton introduced steam engines... No one trusted it. No one trusted steamships. They didn't trust it in so much that Fulton's first, Fulton's Folly, the ship with the steam engine in it, still had two masts and sails and the people to put them up. So this discomfort of being without answers to the just-in-case question was an important concept. And, and it's sort of this really strange line of thinking and thought and, and behavior that we find in sailing. So that was in 1807. And... Riverboats um, were really the first ones to abandon the sail. Um, and that was more of a practical thing because on a river, it's very hard to sail on the, a river if you're, you know, you're confined. Um, the wind, there's always wind shade. Um, and if they had a problem with the steamship engine, they would just, you know, just go and put it against the shore. They, they, were, they weren't out of distance, but in, in the sea... It took several millennia to get through this terrifying step of not having sales and mass. The American packet um, city of Savannah crossed the Atlantic under steam in 1819. It hadn't reached Ireland before it used up all its coal and had to run up its sails. When, the Britain, when Britain's uh, steam-powered Great Western established a regular transatlantic passenger service in 1837, it carried sail. So here's this really mature technology, sailing, sailors, traveling, oceans, and then this new technology, steamships. Trying to get rid of that, 
you know, is I think we all kind of get hung up on ideas in our past or hung up on things that we know and being older than many people that I, 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 I'm very aware of having those old things, those old ideas clinging to my thought processes. So I guess the question is, is how long do you suppose it took to gain confidence um, to give up uh, having your sails, your masts and crew and rigging? Um, surprisingly enough, it, it probably happened, according to some historians, between the Monitor and the Merrimack in 1862. Both those vessels were steam-powered, ironclad ships, and they didn't carry a sail because they weren't meant to be shoreline vessels. They were just round rivers. Not everyone realizes that there were only two in the great armada of ironclad riverboats. The Union made effective use of them in the Civil War, and ironclad gunboats helped the Union Army gain control of the Mississippi River and in the, in the West. So the Monitor had an entirely different uh, new feature at the time, which was a gun turret where the mast would have been. And at the very same time, the British Admiralty, being very conservative, uh, was trying to replace its fixed guns. If you remember, most of the guns were fixed and they shot out the side and they went in one direction. But and the wind played a great deal of... Um, had a great deal of importance in how one conducted battle, always trying to be upwind and and being able to, you have to turn your, your ship to the side to deliver a broadside, etc. But with these ironclad ships, you had rotating turrets. And the problem was that the masts and the rigging interfered with the field of fire. I mean, you can imagine blowing off your mizzen. You know, oops, sorry about that, sir, it was in this battle. So the monitor, it had no problem because it had no sails. And it could fire on this rotating thing. The Merrimack had actually a mast. And so this led to chip away at the idea of having to have masts. Once the military, the Navy realized that steam was somewhat reliable, and I say somewhat reliable, and the development of steamships and steam engines was was going on because at this point you have to remember this is 1862. We're really beginning to get into the age of mechanical uh, development. Um, things are like the Singer sewing machine was being developed, which was, you know, if you've ever looked at a sewing machine, there's a million little parts in a in a sewing machine, and these things were starting to. Um, evolve and they were evolving exponentially okay so this idea that the steamship could take over for sale as a kind of permanent uh, propulsion system was uh, hanging around there's still a lot of apprehension the first commercial diesel powered vessels were built in 1904 and it was uh, petit pierre a French canal boat that was 125 feet long and had a 25 horsepower engine with a variable pitch propeller for reversing. Think about that. I mean, the big deal about having a variable pitch propeller today, 
we go on endlessly about this idea. It's a lot of conversation, a lot, and I'm, eventually we'll address um, different types of propellers and stuff. I have a, I have a, a friend who uh, I will say is one of the inventors of the variable pitch um, prop. Um, but in any case, this is barge. This was a barge, okay, and it used it was used in the inland waters of the Marne and the Rhine canals. So it's just another riverboat kind of thing. But it led the development in diesel power, and this was beginning in the age, the machine age, so to speak, and ships were beginning to, and sailors and the people who built them, the boatyards, were beginning to actually uh, embrace them. But, you know, in 18, step back a little bit to 1890 and Rudolf Diesel, okay, young engineer. Um, he was working on steam engines um, that almost killed him. It blew up and almost killed him. And so he started to uh, construct um, a diesel engine on the theory of radiation heat engine to replace the steam engine and combustion engine. Um, there was a gas combustion engine. Um, it was a very inefficient engine. And uh, the diesel engine, which the question is, is what stops a diesel engine? Answer is there's only two things. No air, no fuel. That's the only two things. Um, what stops a gasoline engine? No air, no fuel, no electricity. Read into that what you want. So at the time... Steam engines wasted as much as, say, 90% of the fuel that it was powered by. And that only gave them like a 10% efficiency rating, where diesel's invention was a compression ignition engine, which everybody knows diesel, what a diesel is. That's, that's after Mr. Diesel. But it had an efficiency of about 73%. So it was really, really a, a huge breakthrough. And this is at a time when people people were not, into conservation. They didn't care how much coal they used. They had plenty of coal. They didn't care about the air and the environment. It, this it wasn't even a concept at this particular point. So his diesel engine, um, when, they, when they tested it, only ended up to be about 26% efficient, whereas the gas power uh, powered internal combustion engines at the time were way less than that way less than that and if you want to really look at it mercedes-benz engine in a formula one car today is using about 51 percent fuel efficiency which is quite is is quite amazing really amazing so in 1899, the diesel engines that were they were being built in Germany, Switzerland, Russia, and the United States. And strangely enough, guess who got the diesel engine contract to be built? And that was Adolphus Busch, who was building his Budweiser beer brand in the U.S. And it, Busch's company built the first diesel engine in, um, in the United States. A little trivia there. So every time you start your diesel... Raise a, raise a glass to Mr. Bush. But for marine propulsion, diesel engines had kind of two options. And 
this is another just in case kind of scenario. And because steam engines, all right, used predominantly used paddles on the outside of the boat. And if you see these paddle ships, I'm thinking back to to Robert Smalls, the famous amazing hero who stole a Confederate uh, side paddle boat, big 167 foot long, basically a platform for cannon, stole it in the middle of the night and escaped from the Confederacy past Fort Sumter and turned the boat over and became a hero of the Union Army. Um, He also became a congressman from South Carolina. Um, Quite a remarkable human being. I'm going to do a piece on him later in the next month or so. Because he was a sailor sailor. And I want to talk a little bit about that stuff. But anyway, I I, I diverge. You have two ways of getting the the marine uh, propulsion out. First, you could use a rotating crankshaft to the propeller. uh, Pretty much what you see today in most boats. Or you could use uh, a generator and you make uh, electricity and you have a battery-operated motor. Um, we all know what this these battery-operated and the efficiency of the motors today are, are absolutely brilliant. And much of that comes from the submarine area, an area that we don't talk very much about sailing-wise, but submarines are certainly... Um, a major part of uh, military, naval history, um, and development. I mean, in 1902, the French were building uh, a submarine that was a diesel-electric. And what was interesting about these diesel-electrics, and I go back, and and, and as well as the uh, Germans were building them, and... um, they're, they're known as the Mann Company. You see Mann diesel engines all over the place, and usually bigger trucks, etc. But they built um, submarine propulsion systems. And the sinking of the Lusitania was done by a German submarine with a Mann diesel engine in it running uh, silently with a propulsion system from an electric motor. So the diesel would charge the batteries as through the gen, as a generator and then the batteries would go to the electric motor and the electric motor would drive the propulsion and the prop of the boat inside now this was incredibly advanced technology and i have to really set the scene because at the turn of the century 1900s 1904 1911 even 1920s there were still a lot of ships with masts and sailors, a lot of them. And there were a lot of sailors becoming very unemployed because this technology was taking over. And in fact, I read an interesting statistic that most of the unemployment or people losing their jobs is not, not because people are shipping jobs out of our country, but because of the technologies replacing those jobs. And this is a perfect example of that. The propulsion systems kept the sailor off the boat. No longer needing wind, can use a, a variable pitch propellers. We get a 125 foot boat, you know, submarines, uh, both mechanical, 
and and electric. So to continue on with this whole idea, the diesel electric motors became, and they haven't, they've changed. Obviously, they've developed a lot, but they created this reversible DC motors so they can go forward and reverse, okay? And be, that, that concept also helped uh, railroad locomotives. So they use the same, it's the same design used today. It hasn't changed. The parts have obviously improved, but it hasn't, hasn't changed. So the first super large seagoing ship was powered by diesel engines was called the Salandia, which was built in 1911. It was a Danish liner built for cargo and passenger trade for a run between Thailand and Scandinavia. The ship was 370 feet in length. It was capable of carrying 7,400 tons, and it was propelled by two diesel engines. Two 1,050-horsepower engines drove the ship at 11 knots. Since, it was, since the Salandia was not powered by steam, there were no smokestacks in, needed for the coal smoke which would give off a remarkable silhouette for a ship of that era. The diesel exhaust went through her rear mast. Um, This caused a new breed of diesel ships to be called smokeless or phantom ships. So there's there's an interesting thing, your phantom ship, which is in fact a diesel engine ship and not a steam coal-driven ship. But there's kind of this other kind of curious apprehension in the just-in-case concept, which is the stern tube. I had alluded to it earlier in some of the first ships that that were built. But in 1843, um, a young engineer, civil engineer, mechanical and civil engineer, named, um, let me get his name right, uh, Isambard Kingdom Brunel. That was his name, Isambard Kingdom Brunel. And in 1843, he designed the first iron-built ocean-going ship, the SS Great Britain. I've referred to this before because of its rudder, um, because it was the first to have a, a, an interior rudder and one that wasn't hung off the back of the boat with pintles. And... This boat, okay, was the first vessel to use a stern tube, which was closed off by a simple stuffing box. Now, a lot of you guys, uh, sailors, girls too, know all about the whole stuffing box thing. But the concept, the reluctance of people to put a hole in the aft peak of their boat so that they could stick a shaft in it and have a propeller and push it along was a concept that people resisted. Like, this is it. You take me with my sails, and now I have to put a hole in the bottom of my boat. This is the way people were thinking at the time. This is exactly the way people were thinking. So this concept of the stern tube In other words, running a shaft for propeller through the aft of your boat and not having water come rushing in was a really, really important concept. A number of years ago, I was driving an old Morgan 
uh, 50, 50 foot Morgan. Um, I was just doing a temporary captain's gig, um, on a, for a charter because the charter captain, um, at the time was, uh, was ill and they had all these charters. So they hired me to, to kind of do it. And when you jump on a boat, you know, you, you, you do a quick inspection. Um, mostly you should do a really good inspection. That could be another podcast, but in this case, you do a quick ins inspection, and I had done that, and then we were off. And we're in the harbor in Virgin Gorda in the Caribbean. Um, and if anybody knows the little harbor there, the, the marina there, they, they will know what I'm talking about. So as I came in, and we're getting ready to go into, we, we were assigned to slip. We are getting ready to go into the slip. And I put the engine in reverse because I was pivoting the boat. And suddenly I had no reverse. I mean, seriously, no reverse. And I couldn't move the rudder. And I went downstairs really fast. And what had happened is when I hit the reverse, it was a fixed prop. When I hit the reverse, the shaft, key and all, had dislodged itself from the transmission. And it was just literally hanging <laughs> in the bilge. I could, the butt end of the shaft was hanging in the bilge, okay, as water was pouring into the boat. The pumps were taking care of the water. It, it was holding. It wasn't, it wasn't, you know, like super disaster moment, but it was holding. So we eventually got some lines across. We were pulled up and we tied off to a dock. Um, and I went down and I finally wrestled this shaft back into the transmission. I had lost the key um, at the end of the shaft in the bilge with all the water. Eventually I found it. I got the key back in. And as I realized, the only thing that was holding this shaft into the transmission was three little square bolts okay and these bolts um were have to be tightened obviously and i tried tightening them i tried tightening the whole thing for the shaft because you obviously you had to do it exactly or the, the shaft would be off in its alignment and there were no indentations for these um they're like needle nose bolts to, to, to sit. There was nothing to seat them in so that they weren't just sort of scratching the surface of the end of the stainless steel uh, shaft. And it was the most curious design and kind of stupid design that I'd ever seen. Now, on larger boats, uh, you can pull the shaft out, but there are, there are keys um, there are, you know, it's bolted into the transmission. It ain't going nowhere. Okay. There's a lot of backup, but this was just like a little tiny quarter inch screws saying, Hey, here you go. Hold that shaft. Insane. So I eventually actually drilled some indentations into the shaft, got some different screws. This is like an all day affair. Got the whole thing, you know, put a new key in it that was a little higher so that it wouldn't go. So that way that the, the shaft, when put into reverse, wouldn't pull out of the transmission. 
But that's just that. And then, of course, I had to pull all the stuffing out of the, out of the stern tube and the stuffing box because it had all just been screwed up because the shaft was a wiggly-diggly mess. Now, I know a lot of people are thinking like, okay, where's he going with all this as far as just in case? Well, the stern tube was the sort of one of the two important concepts of the just in case, which sort of created the whole idea of how we as sailors look at what we do on our boats. We have extra sails just in case. We have safety equipment, just in case. We have life rafts, just in case. Okay. We have spare radios, just in case. We have EPIRBs, just in case. That whole industry of just in case wasn't a plan B industry. It was a just in case. So the just in case is just like a provision against something happening or being true. Now, I have spent a lot of time on boats. As many of you know, I've, I've been around the world several times. I have crossed the Atlantic back and forth 18 times or 36 transatlantics. I've been across the Mediterranean. I've sailed the North African coast. I've been into the Red Sea. I've been around to Kenya. I have, I have sailed the Pacific all the way across to... Uh, Australia to New Zealand and back. I've done Hawaii three times and back. So I've done a lot of a, a lot of sailing, and there's nothing, there's no more a truism than that the sailor's mental makeup is made up of the concept of just in case. And I'll leave you with one little tiny story. I was changing the stuffing in my box. I was in St. Martin and um, my CT-54. And in order to get to that, you had to pull up um, a, a deck panel and slide in kind of upside down and put your back on the hull. And then you could reach up to get to the stern tube. It's a very awkward position to get to it. I've always meant to say something to Robert Perry about the awkwardness of that. Um, there could have been a hatch that you could have just reached down and fixed it, but no, we had to slide up underneath the, the boat, almost the full length of my five foot nine frame. And I did it on a nice hot day, Caribbean day. Water was kind of cool. And I did it without having a shirt on. And one of the things that I, I, I did because I've had to adjust and over the years um, replace the stuffing many times is that um, in order to to set the bracket up against the 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 exterior of the boat you have these nuts right that you have to turn to tighten these, these bolts right and they're big and they take a special kind of and I had an adjustable wrench that I I knocked a little nail in it and I hang that adjustable wrench right there. It wouldn't go anywhere. It was on a basic hook. And um, so whenever I got down there, I could do that. I also had my tool for digging out the um, stuffing itself, the cloth, the, you know, the fabric. 
and I can I had that stuck there too. And I had, I think I sat in a screwdriver that sat in a little bracket that would specifically set to the tubes that, that I could adjust um, for the water and for the air that would go into the stern tube. And I had it perfectly set up. So I was down there. I was on the boat by myself um, at anchor and, you know, just doing my daily maintenance. I'm going to go down. Okay. It's not something I really like doing a lot of. And I just went down, laid down on the boat, fixed the stern tube, got the stuffing in there. And then I tried to wiggle my way out. Now you have to understand I'm underneath the floor of the boat. My feet are up in the air, in the galley. And I'm stuck because my back without a shirt on has literally stuck to the hull. I started laughing so hard. I thought, okay, this is, am I going to die this way? I'm going to die because I was replacing the stuffing in the stern tube and I couldn't get out. And the more I laughed, the harder it was to move because it's a very tight spot. Eventually I took a couple of deep breaths. I exhaled, calmed myself down. And then I just started to move just a little bit, just to wiggle, just to wiggle. And eventually I got out of there. And that was my little stern tube story. But anyway, I want to thank you all for listening. Um, just a little idea about just in case is uh, very much part of sailing and of the sailor's mind. Thank you. Thanks for sharing, Scott. So what do we have planned for next week? Um, <laughs> thank you, Todd. Uh, for next week, I thought I would go with another subject um, that's more about the dynamics of, of life and humans and sailing and tell some stories that are related to um, things that challenge. Now, I'm not just talking about, you know, being challenged to shoot 10 baskets in a row or challenged to, um, you know, uh, do whatever task it is that you have to do. But I'm talking about the challenges being something that you have to do and that it's hard to do. I mean, it could be something very daily. It could be something um, quite um, uh, impressive and difficult to do. Um, something that you never thought you could do. And um, I will relate some stories to uh, some of the challenges that I faced um, in sailing both in the Middle East and um, uh, in, in the Philippines. Thank you for tuning in. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, be sure to rate and review. You can find us on Facebook and at offshoreexplorer.org. You can also listen to past episodes at offshore-explorer.simplecast.com. Our theme song is sung by Paulette McWilliams, with additional music by Amanu Itomi and Tommy Twang. Until next time, fair winds and calm seas.